As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Can't you see? Everyone! They're here already! Welcome to the future where the glass is half full and you'll need new glasses, where you'll be jumping from conclusions. The past is known and a new future is born! Never before in history has so much meant so little to so many. AD on the radio. So, you know, this buddy of mine, he told me an amazing story that I'll never forget. Stuck with me the same way it stuck with him. He said that one time he was outside the grocery store with his father and he saw this man come out of the grocery store and the man had in his hands a package of bologna and a loaf of bread and proceeded to the moment he got out of the store tear into the loaf of bread and the package of bologna and just start shoving slices of bologna and bread down his face. Not even bother to make them into little mini sandwiches or anything like that. Just shoving bread and bologna in his face. And he said that he was about seven years old when he was watching this happen. And he started laughing because it was comical the way this guy was shoveling this food in his face in a way that he'd never seen before. He's like, this isn't how regular people eat. What's going on here? Is this like, is this some, is this guy doing a bit? Like, is he, you know, watch how fast I can eat this bread and bologna. And he said to his dad, that's funny. And his father said to him, he's probably only eating like that because that's the first thing he's eaten in a couple of days. And my friend said, just those words, just the idea that dawned on him as a young boy that there were people in the world without enough food to eat was crazy. And he wasn't that well off when he was a kid. It was an interesting situation, one that I always question. His father was a veteran. And at the time, I think his father was still in the military. But there would be times, he said, where they would run out of milk. And so they would pass a bowl of cereal around. And you weren't allowed to finish off the milk. But each kid had to eat out of the same bowl until all the milk was gone because that was all the milk they could afford this week. I'll never forget talking to this guy who, by the way, went on to do extraordinarily well for himself. Those experiences when he was young of seeing other people in hunger, of seeing, of having to share a bowl of milk with his brothers and sisters. He said to himself, that's some BS. I am not allowing this to happen to me or my family. He's got a couple kids. Kids are often, well, I think one of them went to college. The other one's in high school now and beautiful family. And he said that watching those things happen. Living through, living through the cereal bowl incident 
which was a regular occurrence in his household. And then watching a guy who he realized hadn't eaten in a couple of days shaped his worldview to the point where he was like, I don't know how that happens. I don't know why that happens. I don't know how my dad could be in the army or whatever branch of the military he was in and have this happen, but I'm not allowing this to happen to me and I'm not allowing this to happen to my kids. And it's an image. I didn't see it. I wasn't the seven-year-old there watching it, but the image of someone eating like they hadn't eaten in a couple days sticks with you, doesn't it? It's unpleasant. Something that you don't want to exist in the world. The idea that there's hunger in 2018, that there's massive food surpluses in one place and lack and starvation and people going hungry in another place. It's unconscionable. Seems so wrong. Seems like we as a species have messed up somehow. I remember when we got a new Pope. I say we, not being Catholic, but just when there was a new Pope. The new Pope said some stuff that I really liked. He said, uh, you don't have to be Catholic to get into heaven. Just be a decent human being. It's a possibility. I thought that was refreshing. The new Pope also said... um, Don't concern yourself with judging people when it comes to their sinning. I don't. Really, only God can judge. A lot of people have taken judgment upon themselves in 2016 or whenever it was he became our Pope, and that's not necessary. And then another thing that he said that really, really stuck with me was, please don't waste food. It's a sin to waste food. I deal with the hungry every day. There are millions of people that are hungry in this world. Please don't waste food. Take what you need. And that stuck with me too. The idea of hunger is a horrible, terrible, awful thing that, like I said, makes me feel like we as a species have messed up somewhere along the way. So when an idea comes along that could potentially combat hunger, I'm all ears. When an idea comes along that could potentially put food in the bellies of hungry children, and that food could be nutritious food that food could be food that helped them grow into adults that have a shot i'm all for it which is why i was really really interested when the internet and pretty much everyone on the face of the planet exploded in angry opinionated diatribes over the fact that trump wants to cut back on food stamps for the poor and substitute with packaged food deliveries. Now, what does this all mean? It's a highly nuanced thing, but it's one of the most fascinating things to come out of the Trump presidency, and we're going to discuss all of this next. Real Radio. Radio. 104.1. Where the left and right come together for fundamental truths. AD on the radio, on Twitter at ADSXE. It's got to be one of the most fascinating things to come out of the Donald Trump presidency yet. I mean, you know, allegations of liaisons with adult actresses aside and, you know, the idea of Russian collusion, all the, all the rumor, the hearsay, all the stuff that makes Donald Trump freaking insane in many ways and not saying he's insane but just the idea some of the things that have surrounded his presidency are just like oh my gosh that's insane but i think one of the most truly interesting parts of his presidency is this idea that was just floated out there which is this donald trump wants to cut back on food stamps for the poor 
hold on, and substitute with packaged food deliveries, meaning food delivered directly to your home. Now, here's the thing. Sadly, we live in a divisive day and age where if somebody else suggests it, it's wrong and you must tear it down. And gosh, if I thought feeding the needy it, I thought feeding the needy is an issue on which we can come together. You know, I mean, look, bottom line is we're going to feed the needy. That That's what we do as Americans. There's all sorts of issues around benefits and social programs and welfare and all of the above. And, you know, everybody has a different idea about how this sort of stuff is best administered. Yes, but I think we can all kind of come to an agreement that we want to help those less fortunate than us. I do. I'm guessing you do. And if you don't, that's an interesting way to go through life that I kind of don't relate to. It's not saying I'm a bleeding heart. It's not saying I believe on endless. I believe in endless handouts. But I'm saying that as a human being, when I see someone in a state of want or lack or need, my response is to want to try and do something about that. And I think we're just wired that way as empathetic creatures. Unless you're a freaking sociopath, when you see someone in pain, you want to do something for them. And sometimes there's nothing you can do for them. Or sometimes it's too difficult. Or sometimes you've already given all that you have to give. I'm not saying you can act on all this, but just your gut instinct. When you see somebody in trouble, you want to reach out and help in some way, shape, or form. And I think this is something that could genuinely help. So, Travis, explain a little bit more about this. Because the bottom line is Trump wants to cut back on food stamps for the poor and substitute with packaged food deliveries. What's the problem that people have with it? Well, the problem that people have is that they, number one, don't like Trump. Number two, that they think that the government should not be dictating what foods people on the program are eating the uh-huh. program the the proposal doesn't do away with food stamps it does away with about so the deal is if you qualify for 90 dollars or more a month in food stamps uh-huh. which is about 81 percent of those participating in the program your money that you're allowed would be reduced by about half and then the other half so say you were getting say you were getting like a 200 bucks a month in food stamps. Okay. Which is for a family of one in Texas, you would get about 200 bucks a month. You would still get 100 bucks a month and then you would get the food that would come in this box that's nutritious. What people don't like is the government deciding what the food is. Okay. And you know what's very interesting? We live in this day and age that is completely divisive and the left is going, you can't tell people what to put in their mouths and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? If the left came up with this idea, the right would be like, freaking commies, how could you suggest, how could you mandate what people are allowed to eat? This is the land of liberty, gosh darn it. And these people might not be paying taxes now, but their parents did. And how, this isn't red China. This isn't Tiananmen Square. What the hell are you thinking? And it's just like the, the arguments that are starting about this already are just, they kind of dishearten me because I really kind of wish that people were able to go, hmm, interesting. So we're still talking about feeding people. We're talking about feeding them nutritious food we're still also giving them shopping options because we're not taking away all the benefits and mandating they they must eat the food that's delivered and only the food that's delivered we're just kind of putting better food and and the idea is to correct me if i'm wrong the, the purpose of this is twofold reason number one 
make people or not make but give people more nutritious food to eat you know don't spend it on crap don't spend it on doritos and mountain dew right that's part of the idea it's a nutritional concern that's absolutely part of it because if you look at and this isn't like stuff i'm making up in 2016 the number one purchase product with food stamps soft drinks Soft drinks, $357 million. The number one purchase product. High fructose corn syrup, like literally. Yeah. Wow. The number one. Yeah. I mean. Number one. And so instead of sending Mountain Dew and Pepsi and fine products, by the way, for when they advertise on the show, I love me some Mountain Dew. But like the idea is water, milk juice is that what they're talking about like is that exactly and milk is actually the number two uh purchased which is uh, that's kind of nice but yeah the the idea is that they would provide a wholesome box of food that is american grown american made foods and it would be not junk food Mm. and so point number one of this is it would be better for the overall nutrition of people that are receiving benefits. Point number two is by going direct from manufacturers, by going direct from it's in kind of a, a weird farm to table sort of way by cutting out the middleman of grocery stores of, you know, like, you know, Sam's club and Walmart and things of that nature that absolutely 100% build those food stamps into their business model. You're cutting them out and in doing so while Walmart's not going to be stoked about it, you're saving tons and tons of money and getting way better value for the tax dollars that are providing benefits. That's the other idea, right? That is it. So far, I'm having a difficult time seeing a problem with this one, but let's uh, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into this and see how nuanced we get with it, and see if we can come up with a reason why this might not be a good idea. For more stimulation and less irritation, nine out of ten doctors choose. KPRC AM 950 Houston's more stimulating talk radio Don't get the blues Get all the news We need all of you Skies out there In Radio Land All aboard He's back AD on the radio Give it up yeah so I'm having a hard time finding a problem with this idea. And obviously, this is just an idea. There is all it can open worms everywhere. There's a lot to be looked at and a lot to be considered. Let me see if I can find the problem with a sentence. Trump wants to cut back on food stamps for the poor and substitute with packaged food deliveries. Oh, I think I found the problem. This is a sentence um, that I think a lot more people will agree upon. Cut back on food stamps for the poor and substitute with packaged food deliveries. If you remove the Donald Trump part of the beginning, all of a sudden it seems to be something that we can all come together on. Yeah. Um, So the idea is to deliver. Okay. If you are on some sort of assistance. Uh, food stamps. If you're on food stamps, say you get 200 bucks a month. What this plan is proposing is $100 of your food stamp obligation would be taken care of by food that you didn't even have to leave the house for. Packaged food, nutritious packaged food would be delivered directly to your house and basically substitute half of your benefit. And it would, uh, it would not be things like soda. It would not be things like junk food. It would not be things like candy. It would instead be nutritious staples, I think, is the idea. 
Meanwhile, you got half of your food stamps left to do with what you want. Am, am I right? That is correct. The uh, the things that would, in theory, come in the box are uh, shelf-stable milk, juice, grains, ready-to-eat cereals, pasta, peanut butter, beans, canned meat, poultry or fish, canned fruits and vegetables. So it's it's the staples that you need to make a meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So... You know, if you listen to and any number of leaders in impoverished communities or people that came from impoverished communities, no matter what ethnic group, any number of people will tell you that folks that are the, the very poor oftentimes don't have the greatest educations. The very poor are not necessarily exposed to the greatest nutritional information. And the very poor, a lot of people will say, are victims of food manufacturers attempting to get them addicted to crap. There's so many people that have said junk food is addictive. There's that idea we've talked about on the show a couple times before, the idea of the bliss point. There's lots of people that feel like this should be made illegal. I, I think I I read about the bliss point in a couple different places. One, I, I read one of Russell Simmons' autobiographies, not really something that you want to wave around in this day and age. No kidding. <laughs> but like, um, but uh, Russell Simmons did a chapter on nutrition in black communities, and he was saying that numerous sort of like black leaders agree that their community is being victimized by food manufacturers who purposely make crap that will kill you addictive and there's all sorts of propagandists there's all sorts of alex jones tinfoil hat types that'll say you know genetically modified foods and mass manufactured foods are all designed to be addictive they're all designed to make you slow and fat and keep you where you are in life and keep you easily controlled through this you know surreptitious fat sugar salt grease addiction that you've developed because no one's ever handed you an apple instead of a candy bar in your life there's a lot of people that genuinely believe that folks are being victimized by food manufacturers pumping them full of crap to to keep them fat sick and mostly dead i think the expression is so i mean look you know there's going to be people saying are you checking you know this canned fruit you're talking about travis go lightly is it in sugar syrup or is it in water or is it in a light juice you know what then (laughs) is it just secret sugar like we don't know any of this stuff yet but overall in a society that claims to be in a society where you repeatedly hear the idea that the poor are victimized with with scientifically and genetically designed food addictions to get them eating food that will shorten their lives and cut into their chances of ever having a real life. Again, you, you see my problem finding a, a problem with this. Like I'm, I'm looking for what, what is making people so mad? Well, I truly don't know. It's the Trump part, right? I think the, the biggest part is that Trump proposed it. I think the other issue is, you know, people are trying to find things that um that they have problems with and they make it out to you know like they're saying well how in the world are they going to afford to ship all this food you know how are they going to this is going to be a logistic nightmare this is going to be you know so they're trying to find all the problems with it but in a way where they're just trying to find the problems with it i mean the delivery of the food the what you know what's interesting you know what donald trump's really into and i i think this is just because he's old what's that (laughs) like the post office. Donald Trump thinks the post office is badass, and he's like, he's stumping for the post office, being like, "Dude, you you're in a terrible deal with Amazon. Amazon are ripping off the U.S. post office, and on, on my watch, that's not going to happen." So I would imagine that maybe in the back of his mind, Donald Trump is thinking, 
well, maybe we can stimulate the post office here too a little bit, you know, and the post office might be a thing of a bygone era. I don't know. But people that say this does present a logistical conundrum are absolutely right. But, you know, we do have the U.S. post office who are capable of getting things there and rain, sleet, snow, and whatever the hell else it is. So people are going, how is this ever going to get there? Ah, mail delivery? I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, if Amazon is able to come up with a way, mm-hmm. then surely the U.S. government who directly and indirectly does and doesn't own the U.S. Postal Service, surely they can get as good of a deal on delivery. You would think. By the way, I can't say I can't say the name of the, per, the people that I'm working with, and I can't say what they do, or, but I, just, I had an amazing conversation today about a, a, a privately owned entity that was partnering with public transportation not to get people to the thing that they own and to get employees to and from the thing that they own and they're like oh my gosh working with a government organization on something like this is one of the most frustrating things you'll ever do because they're like okay well we need uh, we need to put up signs so people know where to get on the bus to get or the if people know how to get there and uh, we need to put up signs for the route and then bus numbers and uh, well we're looking about $900 a sign and like we got a guy that'll do it for 150 and they're like no we got to go through this guy we've had an agreement with him for a while and they're just like oh my god it's so slow and they spend so much freaking money so the government will find a way to overpay for this i mean the savings we make uh, <laughs> as a country might be significant but they will screw i mean remember we're talking about a government who paid how many millions of dollars for a fridge on air force one travis wasn't it something like 26 million but maybe it more? was something absolutely ridiculous yeah. and that's why i've tried to block it out of my mind yeah. one refrigerator so don't get me wrong i'm saying there's all sorts of ways the government could screw this up but the idea in theory like and here's the thing when it comes down to the brass tacks of the finances of the situation one thing that we haven't talked about yet is all the food would be a hundred percent u.s grown and produced yeah the food would be for America, from America, by America. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, look, I anything that helps out farmers, I'm a big fan of. And who knows? Who knows? Like, look, if you're getting if you're getting fruit, canned fruit and canned vegetables, you can get enough stuff. You know, you can get enough stuff. You might not be able to get all the fruits and vegetables without importing stuff from a different country. But all this food would be 100 percent U.S. grown and produced. And, you know, you know where the the uh, expression bought the farm comes from? I do oh, not. They bought the farm, meaning they lost it all. Have you ever known any farmers, Travis? You ever met any? I have known some farmers. Um, I had a friend down in the valley uh, in Texas, um, down near Brownsville. And when I was working down near the border for the railroad, I got to know her and her family, and they were farmers. I never saw the farm, and I was kind of surprised that farmers still exist because I just never had thought about it, you know? Well, when you eat corn, it's got to come from somewhere. And uh, now, <laughs> when you when you smoke pot, it's got to come from somewhere. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, the existence of a farmer is a necessary one. Like we need farms must exist. We need fruits. We need vegetables. We need all the things that farms provide. It's a necessity of life. The farm is, but it doesn't change the fact that the life of a farmer is an incredibly delicate and precarious thing you get an early frost and you lose everything potentially for a year maybe longer and that's where the expression bought the farm comes from that means you lose it all and the reason that expression came about is because farmers you know 
big part of the backbone of America are put in situations where they could lose everything every year of their life. And when things do go well, it's not like they're big balling through the world, are, are they? No, it's not. So all this food is going to be 100% U.S. grown and produced in theory. Again, I'm having a hard time figuring out where propping up the farming industry of America is a bad idea. Also, they're stressing that the government can get this food for about half the cost of what the recipients in this program are paying retail for it. Not only does it benefit the farmers, not only is it all American made, they're saying that this proposal could save $129.2 billion over a 10-year period. It's $2.5 billion annually. And a lot of people will say- with a B, right? Exactly. So a lot of people are going to say, well, how much could this really save? Well, I don't know. But the proposal says about $2.5 billion annually. So- that's a good amount of money. Yeah. Now, look, there's going to be people with concerns like, what if people aren't fed enough? What if they don't provide them enough food? What if they say, okay, you were getting $200 in benefits. Now you get $100 in food and $100 in benefits. And what if people look at it and go, the government doesn't know how to shop. This isn't enough to exist on. Look, all of this is a possibility and eventuality. But people are so quick to shoot down this idea. And I'm having a very, very difficult time coming up with a problem with it. Just on the face of things. You know, you support the American farmer. You save... billion over a decade. Not only that, but you are feeding nutritious food to communities that have been victimized by junk food for decades. People that have been fed fat, sugar, salt, grease, stuff that's going to kill them, stuff that's going to give them heart disease, stuff that's going to stunt their growth, stuff stuff that's going to stunt the growth of their brain. All of this stuff just does nobody any good when that's all you live on. It's a basic fact of life and it's also addictive. Junk food is addictive. There's that idea, like I said, of the bliss point, meaning there are scientists that work for food companies that go, all right, we're going to figure out just enough salt, fat, grease, and sugar to put the brain into a state of bliss where it's almost like a drug. And it is food that is created and manufactured to get people addicted and it's unconscionable if you ask me it should be made illegal you know the idea of creating an addictive substance without disclosing that it's addictive is bad bad news and that's my tinfoil hat alex jones conspiracy theory guy coming out just a little bit but if you're making it so again i understand i understand because the sentence starts with the word trump Trump wants to cut back on food stamps for the poor and substitute with packaged food deliveries. People are immediately going to hate it, immediately going to want to shoot it down. But I urge you, if this in any way, shape or form affects your life, or if this in any way, shape or form affects the life of people you know, before you start trumpeting your opinion about this, you really think, you really think about how this could possibly benefit the community. And by the way, if you completely disagree and you think I'm barking up absolutely the wrong tree, this is the sort of dissent I welcome because it's an education for all of us. Please email me ad at iheartradio.com or you can tweet me at adsxe. And I'm asking you not to do this, not because I want to fight, because I'm literally having a hard time finding a downside to this situation. And well, it makes me feel like I'm missing something. I'm very big on playing devil's advocate, but over and over again, I keep turning this one over and I'm going seems good. (laughs) This seems, seems like a good idea. This seems like Uh, Something I cannot, for the life of me, find a reason to have a problem with. And the idea that the number one food item purchased with food stamps was soda. Oh my God. That's, that's, 
that stuff's really, really tremendously bad for you. I gotta, I gotta admit, like as much as my mom denied me artificial colors, artificial flavorings, things with caffeine in it, all this stuff, like in many ways, I'm kind of grateful to her for it because I drink a can of soda and I'm, I feel like garbage. My teeth feel furry and I, I can't believe I did that to myself. Like a can of soda makes me sick. And honestly, I believe that given what's in a can of soda, it should make you sick. And we've just been, as as a society, we've been trained to accept what is essentially poison into our body. Hold on. Let me uh, pause for a delicious swig of this. Fantastic Mountain Dew. And then let me finish my thought. <laughs> no, but generally speaking, like, you know, once in a while I'll have a soda and my teeth always feel furry and I have a stomach ache afterwards. But it's, you know, this is striking me as a good idea and I'm inviting someone to tell me why it's not. Don't get at me about logistics. Don't get at me about how the government's going to screw this up. Forget this is attached to one side of the political aisle and tell me why the idea of fresh, delicious, Well, okay. I don't know if it's going to be delicious. Fresh, nutritious food being sent to make up for one half of some benefits would be a bad idea. Because I'm struggling on this one. I really am. Sometimes you just know you're done. You're longing for that shining sun. You walk these streets most every day. You're waiting to get washed away. So we're going to continue to talk a little bit about this sort of idea of replacing food stamps with actual food deliveries to the home. And this list that Travis came up with of what supplemental nutrition assistance programs can purchase and what they can't purchase is a fascinating one because it's basically defining what a person has the right to eat and what is food and what is not food. But it's kind of a heavy topic. Um, So I think that we should take a little break from this and deal with pretty much like the best news ever. Did you see, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just play this for you. Jerry Seinfeld was on Ellen yesterday and here's what happened. So all these, these sitcoms are having a resurgence. So Roseanne is doing it. I mm-hmm. heard Murphy Brown. Is that really true? Murphy Brown's doing it? Um, so Murphy Br- and, and, and Candace Bergen is coming back. Yes. Do you think, Jerry, <laughs> there would be a possibility that the Seinfeld it's, would come back? It's possible. Somebody sent me that clip, and I was like, "I need, I need a moment to process this. This is, this is, this is a thing. This could come back because for the longest time, I was like, no, because we can never equal it. We can never approve on it. This was the greatest show in the history of television. We knew when to walk away. Jerry Seinfeld talked about it so many times, where he's just like, you know what? I've always had in my life." 
timing. I knew when it was time to get up on stage with my act. I knew when it was time to, you know, go on the Tonight Show. I knew when I was ready to. I know when I'm ready to get off the stage. I know that at an hour people want ten more minutes, and at an hour and fifteen people don't want any more of you, and they're just tired and exhausted, no matter how much they love you. So you give them an hour and seven. He was like, I've always had an excellent sense of timing, and I knew when it was the right time to stop doing Seinfeld. He was offered so much money, like hundreds of millions of dollars to do one more season, and he didn't do it. But what do you make of it, Travis? You're as big a Seinfeld as I, Seinfeld fan as I am. What do you Seinfeld re- reboot, yes or no? It's going to sound sacrilegious because you know how much I absolutely love it. But no, no. Well, I, and I understand that. I get that. And I honestly thought the Seinfeld reunion was handled in the very best way possible. I remember Jason Alexander was bummed out about it. He said he thought that they threw away the Seinfeld reunion for everything it could have been. They threw it away. But did you did you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yes. And I'll tell you, right after Seinfeld, I tri- well, right when Curb Your Enthusiasm came out, I tried my hardest to get into it. And I couldn't do it. Like, I, I watched it, and it was just, I didn't get it. I don't know what it was, and I don't know what changed from the second time. But I remember I had never talked to you about it, even knowing what a Seinfeld fan you were, until, like, years and years after I tried to get into it. And I mentioned something to you about Curb Your Enthusiasm, and you're like, oh, my God, the show's ingenious. And I was like, hang on, you liked it? Oh, my gosh. So good. And you said yes. And so I gave it another chance, and let me tell you, it is ingenious, and I did love it, and I binge-watched it, and I, I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is it kind of started off the same way Seinfeld did. Seinfeld was approached to do a one-hour show called uh, Comedian, I think it was called, or Stand-Up, where they were going to basically, this is what the show would be. It'd be following a comedian through a day in his life, and it would be a one-hour special. And it got developed into a fictionalized version of himself, and it was going to be called the Seinfeld Chronicles. And anyways, Curb Your Enthusiasm was like a one-hour special with Larry David. Like, it was like a ma- almost like a made-for-TV documentary movie, mockumentary movie. And, it, like, it wound up being this thing. But when they had the story arc where they shoot the Seinfeld reunion on Curb Your Enthusiasm, meaning Julia Louis Julia Louis Dreyfus was playing Julia Louis Dreyfus, and Jerry Seinfeld was playing real Jerry Seinfeld, not TV Jerry Seinfeld, and Jason Alexander was Jason Alexander, not George, but it showed them coming back together to write and put together a reunion episode of Seinfeld. It, that was to me the best television that has ever been because it was it was worlds colliding and it was us getting a Seinfeld reunion in a way that was true to the incredible legacy that they left behind. Like they didn't try and do a Seinfeld reboot, but they gave you a glimpse of what that could be like. And for everybody I know, it left it left people wanting more. There was some really big actor, some actor of note. I think it might have been like I think it was one of the people from the 70s show, like Ashton Kutcher or Topher Grace or one of those people that took all the clips of the reboot of Seinfeld that they did on Curb Your Enthusiasm. By the way, this is so meta. This is so self-referential. And if you haven't seen it, it's going to be hard to relate to. But they took all the clips of the episode that they showed 
people working on and strung them together and created created a new episode of Seinfeld. Did you ever see it? It was Topher Grace's who it was, and I did not see it. It was so good. So good. And it just, you know, people wanted so bad for there to be another real episode of Seinfeld that he went out and created it, strung one together from the bits and pieces that they put in Curb Your Enthusiasm. And it's it's glorious. But it makes you want more. It's like Jerry said, you got to know when to leave and to know how to leave people wanting more. And boy, did did they ever. So, uh, yeah, I get your I get your initial hesitation. What is your answer? Do you want it? Do you want a reboot? I don't know. And like, honestly, when somebody (laughs) sent it to me, I was like, I need a moment to process this because like Seinfeld is so important to me. But. I think ultimately I do because one of two things is going to be one of three things is going to happen. One, it's going to be amazing. Two, it's going to be just eh. three. It's going to suck. And you know what? None of these eventualities takes away from my enjoyment of every single episode that ever came before that. So it's there's no way there's no way to ruin the past. The past is there that you can't screw it up. It's it's I I don't know. I'm so cautious when it comes to sequels. That's like uh like somebody told me the other day that they were so excited that Super Troopers two is coming out, and I kind of just laughed. And they're like, "You loved Super Troopers," I said. I, I know. And they're like, "So are you gonna go see it?" I said. I'm going to try my hardest not to because they're just, I know it's going to be terrible. I mean, I want it to be good, but sequels are just not usually good. It's going to be terrible. and I'm so scared, but I hope it's not. I think enough time has passed. I don't know about Super Troopers, but I think with Seinfeld, enough time has passed where it's almost like Star Wars. Star Wars was rebooted and you didn't want, you, you haven't seen the original Star Wars. You haven't seen the new Star Wars, right? I saw, uh, I saw A New Hope. That's all I've seen. Okay. So... It was interesting because the characters in Star Wars, oh, oh my gosh, can open worms everywhere. Star Wars informs me that a Seinfeld reunion could work, and I'll tell you why next. Leave the stimulation to the professionals. Everyone is so smart. KBRC, more stimulating talk radio. There's something happening here, and you should know what it is. <laughs> the dumbing up of America. Now, more AD on the radio. So the big news, if you are like Travis and me and the vast majority of the rest of the world, i.e. a humongous Seinfeld fan, and absolutely everybody loves Seinfeld, so why the hell wouldn't you love Seinfeld? Just people I don't understand. Oh, Travis, you haven't seen what's on my, uh, my, my, my kitchen wall, have you? No. <laughs> is it on your... This is why you need to put the stuff on Instagram. It's, it is on Instagram. As a, uh, as a housewarming gift, somebody gave me a picture of the soup Nazi. No. And sign a signed photograph of the soup Nazi that says no soup for you. Oh my and God. so every single time I'm in the kitchen, sometimes making soup, the soup Nazi's staring down at me saying no soup for you. It's that the is greatest thing. Awesome. I seriously I haven't it's, seen it on your Instagram. It's so oh my gosh. It, 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 I love it. Love it so much. <laughs> did I tell you did I ever tell you that I actually went to the soup Nazi when I lived in New York? I don't remember if you told me or not, but being that you were such a Seinfeld fan. 
I would have been surprised that you didn't. Did you go, and I know it wasn't actually named Monks, but did you go to the restaurant that they go to? No, I never did, but I, I used to pass it all the time. Like You never ate there? I never ate there. <gasps> I never did, and I, I feel I feel terrible. I really, I've got a picture. I've got a framed picture of that on my wall. Oh, man. Yeah, it's actually called what? Is it called Tom's? Is it Tom's Restaurant? I think so. I think Yeah, I think it's called Tom's. It's, I mean, the, so like the Soup Nazi really was a soup place. And I went to it once, you know, having seen Seinfeld. Now, there, I know tons of people that went there all the time. And I, I wound up going there all the time because once I got over the novelty of, um, <laughs> once I got over the novelty of going to eat at the place where the Soup Nazi was based on, I, the soup was delicious. It made your knees weak. Exactly like, you know, it was exactly like George said, hold on, can't talk, shifting into soup mode. It really was everything and then some. It was tremendously special. But like the very first time I went in there, I was so awestruck that I was in that place that, and the soup Nazi told me, by the way, he really doesn't like being called Nazi. Not many people would, but the soup Nazi was like, I ordered and he was like, move to the side. Like mean meaning once you place your order, get out of the way, make room for other people. We got to keep the line moving. I was like, the soup Nazi yelled at me. This is the greatest day of my life. He was actually pushy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's completely grounded in reality. Oh it's my really God. It's 100% true. That's so But incredible. so here's why, here's why I'm not worried about it. Like, I understand the trepidation a lot of people feel. Like, oh, they're going to come together and it won't be as good as you want it to be. But here's the thing. Even if it sucks, even if it was a bad idea from start to finish to do a Seinfeld reunion, well, then it doesn't take away from the enjoyment. That's true. That the previous, you know, like, uh, that every single last episode, except for maybe the Puerto Rican Day Parade, the one weird anomaly of life, wasn't that good. I know you hate that one. I don't hate it. It's just the one Seinfeld episode that wasn't unbelievable. Like even the very first episode of Seinfeld is so great. So great. And signals, Jerry signals. Like, I mean, it's, oh it's just genius, like from start to finish. And then the Puerto Rican day parade kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it again. I've started watching it with a friend who has never watched Seinfeld and oh, yeah, so jealous. So we've started watching it from the beginning and it's really interesting now like seeing it from the very beginning and watching the characters develop and watching the characters develop within each other. So, I mean, it's very, very interesting. Now I can't wait to see the, uh, the Puerto Rican day parade. Cause now I, I want to see, yeah, maybe it'll be great. Maybe it'll be one of those things where you watch it and you're like, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. This is, this holds up. This is better. This was just too ahead of its time. I finally get it. But like, you know, all the characters developed except for George. Jason Alexander had George Costanza dialed in from the very first episode. And uh, like you saw Kramer come into his own. Elaine wasn't even in the first episode. Jerry was like a fish out of water because he was a stand-up comic that had never acted before in the first episode. But it's still really great. And like everyone develops except for Jason Alexander who, who had George Costanza down to a T from literally day one. Who, what's the comedian? Was Is it Larry Miller? The guy who plays the doorman in the episode with the doorman. Yes, Larry Miller. Larry Miller was Jerry Seinfeld's very best friend, like literally best friend. And this is, this is sort of like, it's funny off the, I'll, I'll let you into art world here a little bit. Um, there's times in radio where folks get a little bit sort of, if somebody makes a point or if somebody hits a punchline or if somebody gets a laugh in the room, there are some radio hosts that feel a little threatened by that or don't like that. 
Seinfeld and the people that worked around Seinfeld always said that he was incredibly generous. He didn't care who was getting a laugh as long as there was a laugh gotten. And he was great to work with because he just cared about the overall product. And Travis and I had this conversation off air where he was very sensitively saying, hey, do you mind if I interject here with this, that, and the other? I'm like, dude, do whatever the hell you want. You know, I, I'm, I work with you because I think you're awesome. And I just want this to be awesome. When we do radio, I want it to be fun and I want it to be awesome. So I don't care who makes the point. I don't care who hits the punchline. As And I learned that from Jerry Seinfeld. You know, I'm and I don't know if I ever would have been preoccupied with the idea of I must be the person getting the last laugh. But even if I ever would have been like hearing about how Jerry was to work with, with all the other actors, it was just a tremendous influence on the way I approach life. You know, you allow the people around you to shine, whether you're going out to dinner or whether you're on the radio or whatever the hell it is you're doing and you're all going to be better off for it, I think. What were we talking about? Well, I would have never thought I would have never thought that you would actually change my opinion on it. And I know that wasn't your goal, but you've sold me on it. I mean, <laughs> you've seriously sold. I would have never endorsed just like you asked me from the beginning. Do you want it? No. No, I don't. Now, now I kind of do. I think you're right. I think you I think you nailed the mm. point. Well, I mean, here's here and this is what another reason why the Seinfeld reunion could work. A, Jerry's really smart. Yeah, the way that they did the reunion arc on Curb Your Enthusiasm was freaking fantastic. It was great. And you know what? These guys are sort of sunsetting. Like, Larry David has a tremendous amount of energy for a man of his age. I don't know how old he is, but he's no spring chicken. Um, You know, Jerry Seinfeld, 63. You know, these characters were in their 30s when we got to know them. Um, So it's like all these, these folks might not be around forever. And I think they're going, we might have one last shot to do this together. And it's sort of like a, a high school reunion for them. I think, you know, they want to, they want to do something fun possibly um, before they can't do it anymore, you know, cause nothing lasts forever. So the other reason I think it could really, really work is because Seinfeld has become such a massive part of the cultural zeitgeist. There are, take no soup for you. Travis, if I were to say say to someone, if they were to ask me if they could, you know, borrow something, can I borrow your stapler? No stapler for you. Everyone would be like, aha, Seinfeld, and everyone would get it, and everyone would have a great time. If I were to say, um, uh, I am master of my domain, everybody would know. The contest, yep. Yeah, everyone would know exactly what I was talking about. Mastering one's domain is, you know, you know what it is. Um, If I were to say, uh, if you and I were to see a female walking down the street with some rather impressive bodily dimensions, and I said they're real and they're spectacular, (laughs) you would know exactly what I was talking about. Yep, it's so true. It's so, it's funny because I mean, it's, it's one of those things that even people that, never knew how much Seinfeld had meant in their life or changed their life. Like I'll ask people, they're like, they'll see me watching Seinfeld or I'll say something about Seinfeld and you have reference to Seinfeld and they're like Seinfeld, right? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you, did you love the show? And they're like, no, I mean, I watched it and I'm like, but you knew exactly what I was talking about. They're like, ah, it's Seinfeld. How could you not? Yeah. It's been such a tremendous influence on the cultural zeitgeist, but the show ended in 98, right? Yeah. And that's 20 years ago. So there are adults in this world walking around that were never, never alive when Seinfeld was a thing. The same premise was applied when Star Wars was rebooted and everybody knows what Star Wars is. 
But if you're a 20-year-old, your experience of Star Wars is limited to your parents' description of how incredible it was to go see it in the theaters and how you couldn't wait and how you bought all the action figures and all the above. And teenagers would say to each other, yeah, apparently there's this thing, Star Wars, that people were really into. Well, interestingly enough, they kind of recreated that sense within the Star Wars reboot where the idea of the Jedi was this sort of like long gone myth and teenagers like, yeah, apparently they use this thing called the force and they were Jedi. That's yeah, some people talk about it. I don't know if I believe it. That's where Seinfeld is now. Same deal. We've moved on 20 years and there's kids that have never experienced it, never experienced the joy of going Thursday night Seinfeld's on. Yes. You know? And, and so I think rebooting it for those folks is a big part of the reason why it could work. I think that done with those intentions to expose a new generation of people to Seinfeld that didn't get to experience it the first time around, as inexplicable as that seems, I think that's part of the big win in a Seinfeld reunion. Even as timeless as I think the show is, I still rewatching it. You know, Jerry is talking about it. He had a car phone, and I, I looked at my friend. I was like, a "Car phone." I'm like, "Oh my god, a car phone!" They're stopping to try and use a pay phone to call somebody. It's so funny because the show doesn't seem so old, but it's just so many of the references are things that are just so old. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, you know, answering machines you know, <laughs> yeah. played a major part in it. Like, <laughs> I still, if you call me and if you heard the show where we had Spike Fer- uh, Ferriston, Seinfeld writer, on it, I like I played it for him. He was like, oh gosh, this got a little uncomfortable. You're a real Seinfeld super fan. He was telling the story of the answering machine about how George Costanza had the theme song to uh, Greatest American Hero on his answering machine. Y- you know what I'm talking about, of course, of Travis. Of course. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> that came from and please just you know me wasting your time by trying to describe it it's much better to go back and listen to the podcast on iHeartRadio or any iTunes or wherever the hell it is you listen and listen to the Spike Ferrison episode where he describes the story of how that episode came to be and it, it had to do with a friend of theirs that really had the uh, <laughs> the greatest American hero theme on their answering machine so it played into it so much and then that that's my voicemail. Anybody who's called me knows my voicemail is is me pain, painstakingly recreating George Costanza's answering machine. And you know what's interesting, Travis? What's that? For years, for years, I was convinced I was Jerry. I've come to the sad realization that I might be George. Okay, I told somebody, I said, I'm convinced that everyone has their own Seinfeld is their life. I said, and each of your friends is a Seinfeld character. And they looked at me and they said, so which one are you? And I said, which one do you think I am? And they heard like, Kramer. I yeah. said, I understand why you would say that. I said, but I'm convinced that everyone is their own Jerry. And they're like, you're not Jerry. <laughs> See, I genuinely think I am Jerry. Like, I, I really, you know, like for the longest time I lived in this little apartment by myself. I was perfectly happy going to and from my weird show business job where I worked at predominantly at night when I was a night guy at the buzz in Houston. And you know, like I just kind of took life as it came and I, I really, and even if I wasn't Jerry, I think for a while I became Jerry. I don't know who I am now, but you're definitely my Kramer. <gasps> and I mean, that is the highest compliment. <laughs> I take it as a compliment. <laughs> I can't remember if we told this story on the you air. Did. Or not. Do you did we told it on the air we about did. how I got like a production deal based on this idea of an of a Seinfeld ripoff where you <laughs> yes. were my Kramer? Yes. You know what's 
what's really funny, I was going through some old emails looking the other day for some stuff and I found the deal memo that they sent me. Oh They're like, God. okay, blank production company really loves you. Here's your deal memo. We're going to shoot a pilot in six months. And I, rem- I remember getting that and being so overjoyed. It did not work out the way I hoped, but it was still fun coming across it and being like, ah, you know what? We didn't get to make the show, but I'm still doing radio with Mike Kramer. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I think that's what we call a show. I think that's what we call a show. Costanza. Uh, Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.